that's called the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which measures how a country compares to its pristine state. And Scotland is down in the bottom 15% internationally. So that's like Scotland being in the fourth division of the Scottish Football League system. So pretty low down. Welcome to our latest Hutton Highlights podcast. I'm Elaine Maslin, Media Officer at the James Hutton Institute. Through our podcasts, we bring you a glimpse into our world-leading research across food, energy and environmental security. Today, I'm joined by a special guest from Nature Scott to bring you the first of a three-part pod series focused on the loss of biodiversity in Scotland. The RSPB's State of Nature report, published as we were recording, underlined just how many species in Scotland are suffering. We know the direct causes, such as climate change and pollution, but to address nature loss, we need to know what's driving these factors. It's a big topic. Let's start by introducing our guests. Clive, could you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Clive Mitchell from Nature Scott. I'm a strategic resource manager for our work around nature and climate. Thank you. Robin, could you introduce yourself as well? Yeah, I'm Robin Pakeman, a researcher here at the James Hutton Institute, and I was lead author of the report that we did for Nature Scott that is uh, behind these uh, this series of podcasts. Maybe tell us why we're worried about biodiversity loss as well. Are there, are there some goods, bads? Um, what, what are we seeing happening? Overall species and habitats are in decline. There have been some positive changes in, in species in the UK and indeed in Scotland, but mostly they're generalists. They're the kind of species that can thrive anywhere, whether they're birds, butterflies, moths or whatever. There's been more sharp declines in species that are specialist to particular habitats uh, and niches. And that's of a concern for a number of reasons. And I think we all noticed just how important nature is to us during the lockdown associated with, with COVID. So the loss of nature is part of our cultural identity, but nature is the basis for, for all of the food and fiber, the wood, um, our fisheries, everything that we need to eat, live and breathe is nature. It's important because of the intrinsic value, but on top of that, it also has use value to us in terms of being able to live. And those two values are additive. They're not, you know, it's not a question of one or the other. And just to, just to add to that is that that's against the background of Scotland being a, a really nature depleted country. So there's a, an index called the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which measures how a country compares to its pristine state. And Scotland is down in the bottom 15% internationally. So that's like Scotland being in the fourth division of the Scottish Football League system. So pretty low down. Yeah, and I think it's really important to, to add to that, that that intactness index is telling us about the accumulated changes in the way that we've used our land and seas over four or five hundred years. So it's a, you know, there's a big picture story there, but it, you know, you're absolutely right that our, our nature is very much denuded compared to where it was. So how do we address this problem? Um, I think something exactly what this report is looking at, there are obvious drivers, but there are underlying drivers that aren't always obvious. And Robin, this is what you were asked to look at for Nature Scott. Could you tell us more about this work? Yeah, so I think some of our listeners will be familiar with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But there's also a parallel uh, organisation which goes by the name of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity Ecosystem Services. 
they produced a global report in 2019 which highlighted the direct drivers of biodiversity loss so that's climate change land use change direct exploitation pollution and invasive species but they also devoted a chapter to the indirect drivers which are the what's going on that's pushing those direct drivers so that's issues with um, society's valuing nature the economic system changes in populations and distributions of populations technology and also the way we actually organize ourselves our governance systems so what nature scott asked us to do was two things really one is to actually rewrite that report for a scottish context and then looked at how we could address that how we could change what we do now to to reduce the impacts of climate change to reduce pollution to reduce all our direct you know direct exploitation of things that isn't sustainable so so really thinking hard about how we change and organize our society so we stop this loss of biodiversity and that allows us to then move to the next step which is restoring biodiversity i think it's it's really important to add to that as well um that these um indirect drivers of, of biodiversity loss are actually the, the same drivers that lead to climate change because it's a couple system that has been it's moved together over the last four billion years and it's not going to stop doing that anytime soon so it's really important that we understand and appreciate that um, we have to tackle both climate change and nature together there are a lot of different areas that we could go into from the report so i might try and pick off some key themes clive what are some of the key themes for you so i think there's there's two or three that really jump out for me one is the way that we've used the land over the last 70 years or so in particular has been about trying to maximize the productivity or yield for a particular purpose whether it's growing a crop catching fish growing trees for timber managing moors for grouse deer shooting and so on and so on it's all about maximizing the productivity of that one thing um, in the use of that land and and so that's largely transformed uh, the way that land is used for those particular purposes and you know we see that when we're going about the countryside looking into fields and seeing single crops of, of barley or potatoes or timber in conifer plantations and and so on and it's clear that um, there have been consequences of that sort of intensification industrialization of farming fisheries and, and forestry over the years in terms of the effects on water quality and pollution the chemical inputs and fertilizers that are needed to maintain those systems the amount of heavy machinery that's used on the land the average tractor weight in axle weight on tractors in the 1970s was one and a half tons and now it's about 11 or 12 tons and that rolling weight is more than soils have ever had to bear over the 400 million years that soils have been with us um, including during the lifetime of dinosaurs and so on so that that weight leads to the compaction of, of soils along with heavy livestock and so on and compacted soils lose their porosity they lose their structure uh, and they can't do the things that soils do best one of which is regulating a global carbon cycle uh, and other key nutrient cycles like nitrogen and so on that are absolutely crucial to uh, what's been called a safe operating space for for humanity so you know one of the things that we need to do is to um, secure 
multiple benefits from the land to regenerative uh, land management systems that put soils and water quality first. And one of the advantages of doing that will be to diversify uh, the range of crops that can be taken off a given area within the year and across years, um, which will give us more resilience to the impacts of a more chaotic climate. Uh, the other thing that comes through really strongly for me in the report is, is the, the sheer notion of consumption, how much we consume of uh, food and, and timber and, and all of the other products of the land. And it seems quite clear from, from all sorts of reports, including the, the intergovernmental policy platform that, uh, on biodiversity and ecosystem services that, um, that Robin referred to earlier, but also from the intergovernmental panel on climate change, have, have both kind of highlighted that overconsumption of, of resources, including uh, resources arising from nature, are critical factors in uh, we need to reduce that consumption in order to reduce our footprint uh, on the planet, the impact that we have on the planet, as well as to provide healthy food for people all over the world. One of the underlying things that came out of this was how we measure success um, at a sort of country level. Success is generally measured by how well our economy is growing, so gross domestic product, whether that's going up or not. But one of the issues with that is gross domestic product kind of measures how fast we're depleting the planet's resources. So actually a measure of how well we're doing at the moment isn't a good measure of how we're going to do in the future. So shifting away from that kind of measure of, of um, extraction of resources to one that measures how well uh, our future, you know, how resilient we are going to be to natural disasters or how well our population is going to be doing in the future is perhaps a better way of doing it. And also as individuals, we tend to measure success by by our consumption. Um, by, you know, it'd be really nice to have a weekend in Barcelona. But is that a, a sensible thing for as a measure of success? Because that's generating lots of carbon dioxide. And uh, it'd be easier, I think, what we really need to do is think about how we change as a society where we value um, you know, community perhaps rather than uh, a measure of consumption as a, a way of, you know, measuring our own success. Um, so ultimately we've got to change people's mindsets about what they see as valuing themselves. It shouldn't be about consumption. It should be some kind of other measure. Do we also need to look differently at biodiversity and nature management, such as our approaches to conservation? Is this something that yeah, definitely. Um, again, over that same period of the last 70 years or so, in amongst the kind of land that's been grabbed for farming and forestry and so on, over 70 or 80 percent of Scotland is, is farmed. We have protected areas for nature in, in the remaining, some of the remaining areas of land use in Scotland. And they're important reservoirs for, for nature. But uh, we need to think about their health and function in the wider context of land use overall. So what we've come to do over the last several years is to, is to look at particular features of interest on those areas, but they're gonna change um, because our climate space is changing apart from anything else. And that change is coming much faster than it has been. We've had a one degree C of rise of temperature over the last uh, 100 years. Uh, the next degree C rise is going to come in the next 30 years. That's 30, three times faster 
And we're already seeing that the climate change is, is problematic for, for nature with early storms coming at different odd times of the year, uh, which are hugely damaging to, to breeding birds in the spring, for example, longer periods of drought and dryness over the summer, degrading nature. So we need to make our land use much more resilient overall um, to the impacts of this changing climate. And we need to manage our protected areas differently to, to be more resilient um, to those changes. One of the things that really came out of the report is that we've kind of obsessed about doing conservation better. Uh, you know, so we think about how we can uh, add hedges to farmland, say, or something like that to improve the habitat for farmland birds. But ultimately, that's kind of tweaking things. But it's not really tackling the underlying problems, and that is that the way we've organised uh, the way we live is ultimately um, degrading the planet. Uh, and I think the real issue is the sort of narrow horizons that have when people are thinking about their production system. So we've got to think and actually tackle some really tough challenges about what's best for you know the whole population rather than just individual sectors and how you know and that's really from we've specialized our agriculture so much that it doesn't really look beyond you know the earning potential of that piece of land rather than what that piece of land has to do uh, for society rather than for the um, for the the owners of that land I forgot to mention something in relation to um, our approaches to protected areas, and it kind of relates to uh, the point that uh, Robin was just making as well. So if you imagine a, a green sheet, okay, and uh, that kind of represents, if you like, pristine nature and tie dye it, and then you're left with a sheet with some relatively dark areas of green and some faded areas and some completely bleached areas. And let's say that represents the impact that the productive systems that, that Robin's just talked about uh, on, our, on our landscapes and nature. And then suppose you were concerned with restoring and enhancing that nature. You might ask where, where your resources would most need to, to be applied. And, and for me, I think that would be mainly in the faded areas and the, and the bleached out areas where most of nature has been degraded and lost uh, as a result of those highly productive um, systems. Uh, but actually, in practice, most of our resources go into the dark green bits where nature is left in the form of protected areas and priority habitats and species. And, and that is really important. But if we're going to restore and enhance nature across the pieces we need to to address a climate nature crisis, uh, then we have to put an awful lot more effort into those areas that are used currently for more productive uses. I think there's an idea of spur and share in this area is do we need to take a different approach to picking between one of those or do we need both? Yeah, that's a really interesting scientific argument and there's been dozens and dozens of papers on either side. But ultimately, it's got to be about land sparing because we need land for biodiversity. A lot of countries have signed up for 30 by 30, so protecting 30% of their land by 2030. Because there's a realisation that you need considerable areas for that biodiversity to persist. And the only way we can do that is through land sparing. So we have to think about how we turn land we use for production currently into something that is used for biodiversity. There's always, you know, there's an option for land sharing as well. So that's not to say that we can't use that productive land 
in a better way to allow the persistence of some biodiversity, but ultimately sharing has to be the way we work. And that's thinking about how we make the most of the land we've got and rather than use it inefficiently like we currently do. Again, a bit of it comes back to what we think about when we think about nature or biodiversity. Is it all life everywhere or is it the life that's left in some protected areas and local priority habitats and species? In terms of the, the function of life in, in regulating key, key global cycles like carbon and water and nitrogen and so on, it's all life everywhere that, that does that. And so it's really important that uh, we allow, uh, particularly our soils and ocean systems, to do that job for us because it's literally vitally important to us. So in that sense, sharing has to be the, the only way forward. I, I mean, I think some of the debate around the sort of sparing sharing question has been around economically efficient ways of allocating resources to protect and enhance nature and biodiversity. And but what that tends to leave out, as it were, is the um, the role of or the character of that land that's left in particularly in terms of its vulnerability to climate risks and so on, and the complexity, connectivity, redundancy in those systems that make it more more or less resilient to the impacts of a changing climate. So sharing, deriving multiple benefits for the land in terms of the foods, the wood, the fibre, and all of the other things that we need from it, along with nature and climate regulating services and resilience to the impacts of a changing climate, all come together in the land. We can't think about it other than doing all of those things at the same time, which is very different to the way that we've managed it over the last 70 years. Yeah, and sharing and a lot of what we've discussed here, because this reaches across so many different parts of society, raises the C word, collaboration. That's, I think, a big theme across the report as well. I don't know if you want to touch on that, Robin, how important collaboration is. So in the summary of the report, we tried to highlight who was responsible for each change that had to be made. And almost all of them had multiple groups involved from all the way down from individual behavior through to the actions of international organizations like the UN. The Scottish government had one or two legal things that they could do on their own, but almost everything else was collaborative. You have to think about actions across the whole of society to get some changes. You know, one example might be using public transport to reduce carbon emissions to reduce climate change, which so you reduce the impact on biodiversity. But for using public transport, you need individuals to use it, but they can't use it until it's been provided by local or national government. You have to have action amongst multiple actors to, to get some change. And a similar thing might be getting individuals to use more sustainably sourced products. But it's very hard to know if your product is sustainably sourced unless it's labeled well. So businesses and government might, should really be thinking about how to strengthen the labeling of products. So, you know, as well as the fat and sugar in them, that it's come from somewhere that's not degrading uh, local biodiversity or having, you know, big carbon outputs from that production process. All of these things, you need multiple people involved, but at the same time, everybody has to do their bit. They can't always rely on somebody else to do everything. The Scottish government kind of sits at the center of this. But it's, and, it, and it's kind of perhaps got to initiate change, 
but it's got to be change that's acted on by all sorts of partners. Coming back to some of the points I made earlier about um, the way that, that climate, climate and nature work through a series of cycles, we can identify the climate nature crisis, if you like, uh, as a result of a broken carbon cycle. And, and there are two main causes for that. One is the burning of fossil fuels, which takes carbon out of geological reservoirs, coal, oil, gas, that would remain locked away from the atmosphere ordinarily for tens of millions of years. We take it out of the ground and we burn it and we put that carbon back into the atmosphere in a few short decades. And similarly, with the way that we've used and transformed land, forest to farmland, management of farmland itself and so on, has taken carbon out of those vegetation and soil systems that would normally be locked away for thousands or hundreds of thousands of years and put it back into the atmosphere in, a, in short order. If the nature of the problem that we have are, is a broken carbon cycle, uh, then, then it seems obvious to me that the solution must lie in some kind of circular economy. So the economy that we have at the moment, we, we basically, we take stuff out of natural resources or nature and the land and sea. We make stuff from it, uh, we use it, and then we throw it away. And uh, a circular economy, on the other hand, uh, tries to maintain the duration of stuff in the economy when once it comes into the economy and tries to maintain the value of that as well. So there's much more emphasis on designing things so that they can be repaired and reused, repurposed before ultimately being recycled and then as a very last resort put into a waste stream. That circular economy at the moment tends to be around material flows in the economy, the stuff that we buy and the waste that arises from that. And food waste is an important part of that. But it also applies to the whole of the rural economy and the biological economy as well. So thinking about farming and, and forestry in particular, that they can be managed through so-called regenerative practices that are, are mindful of the quality of soils that support all of this growth and water and carbon and, and allow soils to do that. So the practices associated with that tend to be very no or low till practices, minimizing soil disturbance, um, minimizing chemical inputs to the, um, to, the, to the ground, using cover crops, intercropping to manage for pests and diseases, and, and growing a much greater diversity of crops and, and off the land, integrating, bringing together forestry and farming for so-called agroforestry, um, which provides the, the trees can provide shelter for for cattle. The cattle provide organic fertilizers for the for the soils, and so diversifying the the management of the land for for multiple benefits, as we as we spoke about earlier. So those kinds of principles, and and thereby making sure that land is as close to a, a sink of greenhouse gases as opposed to a source of them. So at the moment. 50% of Scotland's net emissions come from the land, and that needs to be down to about zero in order to, to get to net zero, enhance nature, be resilient to the impacts of a cli changing climate, and provide benefits for, for people.
a lot of these issues aren't that well understood, which is why then Nature's Got commissioned this report. So we are very conscious about direct drivers of, of biodiversity losses, as Robin mentioned earlier. Um, but as I mentioned earlier as well, the, the work around climate change and loss of biodiversity uh, both point to these underlying causes of those of those direct drivers. And it seems clear, particularly from the, the intergovernmental um, report that, that Robin referred to that brought out these indirect drivers, that we're not going to be able to tackle the direct drivers unless we get to grips with these under, indirect drivers. And that includes the institutional arrangements. And, you know, I think it's, for me, it's another sort of key aspect of all of this is that most of the institutions uh, and 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 decision making arrangements that we have surrounding the use of the land and sea were put in place initially in the 1950s and 60s and and so forth um before we have had much of a notion about how the earth works as a as a as a planetary system uh, and how climate and nature emerge in the ways of working of the world. And in a sense, with hindsight, we could say that actually the institutions and decision-making processes that we have for the use of land and sea and natural resources have created the climate nature crisis. And if that's true, and I think it is, the follow-on question is, is whether the same institutional and decision-making processes will be sufficient to solve that problem. And I don't think that I don't think it will be. I think we need to arrange our decision making in institutions so that they can align with the sort of processes and systems that we've been talking about in how the how the earth works to foster the degree of collaboration and management of the land and the sea that's compatible with a safe climate for people, as well as providing the nutrients in our food and fiber and wood and so on that we need to live i think that's just one of the many many aspects of this report that we could easily keep talking about all day um, but our time is limited so i want to thank our guests uh, dr clive mitchell and professor robin pakeman thank you also the listener for joining us for this episode we hope you'll join us for the second podcast in this series when we'll be joined again by nature scott to look at how some of the perhaps obvious solutions to addressing these underlying causes of biodiversity loss are not that simple. Do like and share the podcast and of course subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Just search Hutton Highlights Podcast. Until next time, stay safe.